And you're very welcome along to another episode of the SESI Staff Room. Uh, the SESI Staff Room aims to be a half an hour or so program talking to teachers about what they're doing in their school, what works for them, what doesn't work for them. We want to hear from you. The SESI Staff Room gets most of its information or most of its feedback or the feedback to us from the SESI List. The SESI List lives on www.sesi.ie. If you're a teacher and you're not part of the SESI List, what are you doing? Go over to the SESI website, register, and if you have any questions about anything you're doing in your school, it doesn't have to be about technology, just about general teaching and learning. The SESI list is the place to be where you have, I think last count was about 2,500, give or take, teachers on there. Um, and if you have an idea, they'll the, the, the list will let you know whether it's good and indeed they'll let you know if it's bad as well. So uh, don't be afraid to give, you, uh, to give us your ideas. Uh, today we're going to continue on from where we left off last week, where we were talking to Kieran Nigrishkal about uh, G Suite and how she uses G Suite in school. Today we're joined by Connor Power. Connor Power, will you introduce yourself and the school you're from, please? Yeah, my name is Connor. I'm teaching at Colosh de Ciaran. We're a second level school in County Limerick. Uh, exciting times for us at the moment. We're moving into a new build. It was due to be September, but that's going to be delayed a wee bit. But um, yeah, I've been teaching there for over a decade now and using G Suite or Google Apps as it was back then for over a decade also. So it's been an interesting evolution for me. Uh, I'm also involved with SESI uh, and uh, for many years have been uh, attending the SESI conferences and using the list as an invaluable resource. Um, I do a bit of work uh, for JCT as well on the short course in coding and um, and we've been doing the Lean Start Computer Science as well. So we have a nice spread of activity uh, from, from, uh, from the various kind of organizations and it's nice to link in and SESI has always been kind of... Uh, you know the main fulcrum for that uh so that's um that's that and, and with regards to g suite how how do you find like I, i'd love to talk to you about how g suite has evolved from when you started using it to what it is now when it was google apps for education to now but it, we can't really go into how it's evolved if i always open up with what does g suite look like for you so last week i asked kira if i'm a new teacher and i'm coming to your school what does G Suite look like for me? Well, uh, you, you know, we, we have, um, we've been using G Suite for quite some time. So like as a new teacher in the school, you can't, you can't help but, but be plugged in the minute you arrive. And say we would have had long time, for a long time have provisioned all the teachers and staff with accounts. So it's really like, it's the only show in town. And I'm sure others have, have, have spoken to you as well about, kind of using it for like teacher feedback forms, surveys, uh, communication in terms of email, um, you know, and now meet as well, which wasn't a big part of the equation previously, obviously in, 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 um, in the times we're in now, it's, it's become hugely, uh, hugely important. But uh, what it looks like, I mean, is it looks like the, the one-stop shop for all our communication and you know it's 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 very powerful in that regard so as a teacher coming in you know you get your log on and it can be a bit kind of overwhelming if, if you haven't but I, I think like I mean over the last couple of years uh, like I would speak to teachers in various uh, scenarios and there are schools that have more or less uh, in terms of reliance on IT over the years but I think what's happened lately is is now it's it's kind of, you know, all schools are now uh, almost in the same boat. So, I mean, the, the good thing about G Suite as well is that a huge amount of teachers coming in, if they hadn't used it in an educational setting, would have used it in a, in a personal level because um, Gmail, you know, has, has become so popular. So, you know, it's, it's, it's I mean, and then the big thing really about it is, say, I have had experience over the years of numerous VLEs, uh, platforms, you name it, I've either administered it or used it. And what really sells me on the Google stuff, and I'd be known as a, as a good advocate for it, is the, um, you know, it's the minimalist interface and ease of use. It's not always the most fully featured solution out there, but they cut down the kind of interface so that everything you need is at hand and everything makes sense. And you don't, you know, you don't always get all the bells and whistles 
but that's what makes it um, an interesting kind of uh, prospect for any teacher coming in. And I think that's where a lot of products in the past um, didn't gain traction or, you know, we've all known certain, you know, VLEs and that you might have got a hardcore kind of maybe 10% of staff buy into it and throw all their stuff up on there and try and get traction with the students like and, um, you know, and then there's training days and days mm. and days of training. But I find with G Suite, you know, you, you don't need a lot of training as an entry point. Now, there are a lot of kind of advanced and extended features that not every teacher would, would be using that have massive potential that would require a bit more in terms of training and um, exemplars of practice. But I, I think really what's great about G Suite is at a basic level to do the basics on it, um, you can get someone. And we have like, I mean, we'd have experienced the team at the school that that are all involved um, of getting teachers from zero to kind of functional in 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 you know in half an hour and for okay. teachers that are already using g suite as a means of communication like something like classroom um i would have had teachers saying oh yeah i must look at this and you know i must spend a bit of time on that and then you can if you can kind of grab them for five or ten minutes you can have them up and running with their classroom and logging in students you know and i think that's 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 really what set it apart and in terms of what it looks like when you come in it's like you know it's the one-stop shop and if you give it kind of half an hour you can you can get get up and running and if you give it a couple of hours with someone who who has um who has a bit of experience you know you can really get it going like and really get everyone on board i think what we found with uh with g suite when i was setting it up i i the first time i set it up i was using the term google apps for education oh you're going to use google apps for education for that and people zoned out a teacher's zone now this is going back seven years ago now but they zoned out with i i don't understand this google apps for education but when you removed the terminology and you know you sign in here with your email address your school email address and that sign in opens up a window that gives a sandbox if you like that gives you access to your emails and your drive the classroom wasn't uh, didn't feature at the time all of a sudden they understood it and it's that intuitive understanding of what's going on is in my opinion why it's 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 doing really well at the moment now there are others i mean 365 we featured 365 to to um Two weeks ago with Helen, and it's fine if, if you're if that's if that's the way you're going, but it's the for me it's the intuitive to be able to sit down and just automatically know without training. Now, to get to the next level, a bit of training helps, but not to need the training is is a huge deal. How is um how are the email addresses handed out in your school? So one of the big fears and one of the things I get asked all the time is. When do I hand out email addresses? How do I create email addresses? Who creates the email addresses for me? Um, are students allowed to have email addresses? Could you, without putting you on the spot, um, sort of cover some of those questions? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's it's um, the landscape has changed a huge amount in the last two years with the GDPR regulations, you know? So... Um, but if you go back to what was existed before G Suite, a lot of schools could have been using, um, if they were techie schools, they might have had an in-school server and the headaches of administering that, you know. Um, yeah, the alternative then is schools would have used web hosts which, uh, where they can create email accounts, but they tend to be quite clunky. That was this, this scenario um, in, in a lot of schools that, that I would have dealt with, you know. You, you, there's no automatic way of creating the accounts you're going in and you're you're kind of um you're clicking buttons to create the accounts i mean the beauty um in, in, of of g suite in, is in the administration of users particularly and i have a video up on youtube um on, on how to on this is that all you need is a csv file so a csv is a comma separated values file and you can generate these with just like excel or any spreadsheet software and literally you just have a list of names uh, you, there's a little kind of magic in the formulas. So a couple of formulas will generate the format for the names, and then you can save that list and upload it into into the G Suite interface, and it will automatically create those accounts for you. Um, so there's different approaches. Um, we, you know, and can I can I just mention just on a point of the CSV file and the fact that you've uploaded stuff to to YouTube? I think it's worthwhile 
checking out Connor's uh, YouTube presence and indeed on Twitter as well, because you have loads of videos up. And you put up a CSV instructional video at the same time I put up a CSV instructional video. You got hundreds <laughs> of views and I got nine. So your videos are getting traction. So don't don't underplay them at all. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it depends. Like some, some of them are very timely. Like, like you said, traction a lot of a lot can be down to what people are trying to at the time. And I did put a lot of content on Twitter because it seemed to be um, a real central point uh, when things kicked off and how to get going. And you know, we were in a lucky position that we had been using the technology for many years. But you know, some schools needed to do a really quick ramp up in terms of provisioning accounts, etc. I mean, it it was so good for us to have. The students all provisioned with accounts and ready to go online you know um so with the csv in particular yeah you know there's a couple of kind of uh, considerations one would be around how do you name the students because if you do uh, you know you could do numbers for anonymity a bit you can do this first we do first name surname but we put the the start year so we do kind of a format would be for me starting next year be two zero c power um, at, at cco.e for us in Colossal Curon. Like uh, another consideration in terms of email that schools mightn't think about, um, and when I've set up, I've helped a number of schools get set up, is the, um, the domain name in particular. So schools will have usually got their own homepage, and schools, particularly if they've got long names, Osquelga, um, there's a lot of uh, opportunity for misspelling email, account, email addresses. So I would encourage them to kind of come up with an abbreviation you know, um, because, you know, then people could try fathers or misspell a lot of, especially yeah. like Irish schools. So something short, like we're cco.ie, Colossus to Curon online, if you will. And a lot of the other schools I would advise have gone the same route. Um, some schools could be worried as well when they're setting up G Suite that when they go tinkering with the settings on their normal school website, that um, they could mess something up and lose their, you know, lose access to their homepage for a while. Um, you know, some schools with G Suite also gives you the ability to set up multiple domains within your G Suite account. So you could have a staff and a student um, email address and have them slightly different and it will allow you slightly more control over what you can do there. But um, in terms of the ins and outs of giving students access to mail, um, obviously, you know, uh, any any IT coordinators and management will have to look at the GDPR regulations and come up with a plan around that. Um, we found it actually impacted us. We tended to be um, not too vociferous around students when they leave because a lot of students, when they did the CEO uh, applications, etc., would have used their school email accounts. And so we would leave them active for, you know, the bones of a year after they leave the school. But under GDPR, we can no longer do that. So um, for anyone managing G Suite now, there's a bit of pressure there just to make sure that when someone leaves the organization, that um, they no longer have access to their account be, because that's part of the the really the regulations. I mean, the the good thing about G Suite is it does allow you to take out your your email and your and your documents as well. But um, in terms of how and when we provision the accounts, then um, we would get straight up in first year. Okay. Straight up first year um we would have a couple of orientation days at the start before the um the rest of the school start back and we used that opportunity to get the students in and get them logged in because um once 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 we have them logged in and using it and the big thing with students using email is actually that the school uses it effectively if you give a student an account and they're not really using it um that often they will forget the password and just won't think of logging in but one thing that's really and um, we found very effective um since the lockdown started is we created a google classroom for each year group and that allows us then to to post notices and forms and um, announcements and videos, anything to the year groups. And that, you know, that's been really, really helpful because I think the students kind of find the email avalanche a bit tricky to manage. Whereas, you know, with classroom, it's a bit more straightforward in terms of what's laid out in front of them. And um, because that was going to be my next question. So you've, you've set up all your, your first years now, and in particular, I suppose this coming year. So you've set up all your first years, there you go. There, there's email addresses. Mm -hmm. I, I'm involved with a few schools, and I've asked 
uh, from both 365 point of view and from G Suite point of view. But I've said, for teachers who are unsure, include me as a student on your whatever you're using, and I'll get a notification, and I'll be able to see if I see any mistakes coming up, then I'll be on the phone to you, or I'll, well, if you don't hear from me, it's good. Now, I found my inbox got very loud. Um, so it's interesting that you're saying that for school student information, instead of it being an email, they use their email to access a central location rather than the inbox being the central location. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you avoid the noise, I think? Or is was that your thinking, avoiding the noise of the inbox? Well, uh, there was a number of advantages, really, to having the, the classroom set up is because, you know, um, you have already made also like you have already made a list of all the students in the year because what you'll find with big schools particularly you've students come and go and it can get messy particularly at transition year some students go straight into fifth year and managing kind of year group lists can be quite tricky whereas with classroom you can give out the code and you can see at a glance who's enrolled in the class and also students will also you know if you tell a student oh, i sent you an email they'll go oh you know I don't <laughs> Whereas if you have things organized in topics and classroom, it's much easier. I mean, the email is still vitally important for direct communications particularly. Mm. But just since we've started using it this year, we have found that definitely classroom makes a lot more sense in terms of general communications because, you know, classroom also has the option of asking questions and, or, you know, you can put up your forms and surveys that way as well. And um, yeah, we just find it's, it's easier to organize, particularly, um in relation to things like a google form you might have sent out a couple of weeks ago you'd normally have to go in and resend that email directly to a student um also when you have all the students in a classroom um you have the option of sending them a group email as automatically as well so it just saves the hassle of managing um a class set and also then there are certain tasks during the year particularly with jct around collecting maybe evidence of work or particular things for a whole year group and it's nice to be able to have that, you know, with the classroom, you can view assignments and who's turned in and who's done what. Um, the only downside of it um, that we had to work around, I mean, the thing with Google is um, if there's features missing or features that don't work exactly the way you want, there are kind of hacks that you you, you can get to. So it would, with a year group classroom, you can only have a maximum of 20 teachers. So, um, you know, an, op an option around that would be to create, say, all the PE teachers wanted to post kind of uh, during the, the lockdown, they wanted to post PE activities. Mm. So you mightn't have enough space in 20 uh, teachers. To, to So you create a general PE account and allow them to post from that. Um, or you could nominate one teacher in, 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 in the group. Or you can add and remove teachers. But it was just a thing there. Um, you know, the, there are always workarounds for these things. So, yeah, we found that quite effective. Um, we would have the students then kind of, like I said, in the first week, log in, because once they're into Gmail, they get access to everything else. And there's two other considerations. Um, like one, next year we're rolling out Chromebooks for all our first years. So we've bought um, a set of Chromebooks, uh, and when they come in the door, they'll be given the Chromebook. And the idea is we want to grow with that. Um, you know, rather than the chicken before the egg, rather than have a kind of a technology program where we tell, you know, buy these and, and everything will be great. We want to prove the concept by putting the Chromebooks in their hands, by using it effectively. And then say in year two, you know, you've had the experience, you know, um, now now's the time to invest. Um, the second thing is like... Uh, can we um, can we talk a bit more about, about that? That's an interesting approach. So is this year two? testing out Chromebooks, but you're not saying we're testing out Chromebooks. Your first year they're coming in and you're just giving them devices. Well, we're like, um, we're kind of, we're long past the testing um, stage in terms of we have a couple of sets of Chromebooks that we have. Okay, been, okay, sorry. But, um, but like that, I mean, sets are great and they're a great alternative to kind of, uh, you know, quite often with labs, there's pressure on spaces uh, and, you know, it's nice to be able to have the set. But sometimes, you know, there are issues around booking. And I find like for managing labs and, and laptops, it's, it's the usual. Everyone wants it period two on a Monday and then yeah. period two on a Tuesday. No one needs it. Um, so the sets are very handy there to fill a gap. But really for consistency, we want, uh, you know, we want everyone to have access to the technology and particularly in first year. Now, 
there are arguments around they, they needed even more in third year around CBAs, you know, so we do have enough technology to cover that eventuality as well. But, um, we, you know, the, the Chromebooks are so useful in terms of deployment as well and management, and particularly with the new Chromebooks, which we, we, I'll discuss a bit later when we talk about buying options there, you know, into, that um, they're a very kind of effective machine to use in this kind of a scenario. And then by the end of first year, you know, we, we guaranteed that the, the students not only are familiar with the software, but they've had the opportunity to use it extensively through the hardware. And the big thing about like technology, I mean, we've been we've been a technology focused school for, for a long time, um, is availability. You know, you know, if you have you, you need you need access to one to one. And now there's an argument as well. Two to one is a very effective way to teach for, for a lot of uh, a lot of activities. But, you know, sometimes if there's particular assignments that are that are, are, are required, you know, you need to know that each student in front of you is going to have the tech or it kind of falls off you know say like okay. if there are five students who don't you have to provide for those and work it out so this kind of eliminates that so a teacher planning a class will know like all the students in front of me they're going to have the technology and they're going to um, be able to do this and the whole time it goes without saying like it's technology enhanced learning you know it's not using it for the sake of it obviously you know some, some tasks and some activities um technology will support and, and others not but um, I mean, that's what we want. We want it not to be a kind of, um, you know, like all tools, like, you know, you don't you don't think too much about picking up your pen when you need your pen or picking up a ruler or a set square when you need that. So this should be another aspect. This should be another kind of thing. That but that, to be to be fair, I, I I think you're you're on the right track there. I think I think you're definitely you're pointing in the right direction. But there's a bigger picture and there's a bigger fear rather than a bigger picture is. The infrastructure one is is not there to support. So, what I'm where I'm coming from is I get asked, we've gotten the grant, um, the magic grant. It's landed. Let's go buy some stuff, and you kind of have to go stop now. Uh, do you have a plan? Who tests that for you? Is that is that a teacher led thing or is it an outsider in? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, like, say, myself and the principal of the school would have kind of had experience in industry. In, in, in okay. So, you know, we're, we're, we're a different kind of case uh, to, to a lot of schools. But, um, like, I mean, we, we would have advised schools in the past, and it's absolutely key, particularly with Chromebooks, um, because, you know, you can do certain things offline with Chromebooks, but they're not, they're not a very fun device when you don't have any connectivity, you know. Um, it's changing a bit with Linux apps and that, but... You know, really, it's a, it's a, you know, you do need the infrastructure in place, and you know, it's a hearts and minds with management as well. Um, you know, a lot of kind of forward-thinking principals will will have no problem with the investment, but you know, sometimes if the if the if the um, if the kind of um, if the experience isn't there, they might balk at paying maybe you know twenty thousand for a Wi-Fi installation. Mm. You know, um, for for a larger campus like you know you are looking at twenty twenty five thousand like for a decent Wi-Fi. Um, it's changed a lot since the PDST and the Department of Communications brought in the hundred meg. That was revolutionary. When I started in the school first, we were on a three meg connection. Oh wow. So, when the 100 meg came in it was like a breath of fresh air um then a lot of schools were finding actually that um you know they were buying kind of either either kind of consumer or small office home office gear from from local retailers or that and that that was working fine when you had feco bandwidth but when you yeah. had 100 meg then and you had loads of devices trying to pull off it it was just falling over like so um you know we would have invested uh in in a decent wi-fi um like we got rockets gear which, you know you just have to get gear that's designed fit for in purpose industry which is concurrent users like the problem with a lot of the home office and home gear is that it's designed for a family or, or a household of you know 10 20 devices max you know whereas you need a managed wi-fi infrastructure that's going to support kind of upwards of 40 50 simultaneous connections on one node um so i mean we we were kind of in we're in the accommodation we're in is funny because we're in a lot of prefabs uh, a lot of the school is prefabs so we were mad running cable is just kind of network cables across the roofs and dropping access points wherever you want like <laughs> um wi-fi is a bit of a it, it's a bit like um 
you know, it's a bit of a dark arts in some ways. Uh, we're moving into a new build now, so like the Wi-Fi kit out would be a big uh, focus for us. Like, but and um, we found in in the in the in the other infrastructure, some of the newer prefabs had kind of metallic shielding or something in the in mm. the walls that didn't allow the signal to penetrate. So you might have to drop specific kind of access points in there. Um, the other thing is kind of, I suppose. Uh, you know, and what you said is, is, is like, um, you know, knowing the right devices. I mean, like every school has to decide first what they want to achieve and what they want to do. And for some schools, the iPad might be the the best choice. For some schools, a Surface tablet, if you're, you know, or a Surface um, uh, laptop, if you're 365, uh, you know. Uh, so you got to kind of start with what you're trying to achieve first. Some schools do a mix, like we would have a couple of sets of iPads for doing media work. Um, and then we have the Chromebooks as our, our general purpose, but we'd have a couple of, um, we have a set of then high-end laptops for doing DCG or, or kind of um, computer science if there's some 3D gaming or some work around that like that needs to be done. But, um, you know, so, you know, the iPad works great for schools that have gone down that road. We just, um, you know, for our needs and, and what we have experience with teachers and staff, it's it's the Chromebook we find is is the most effective device in that, in that scenario. And, um, the other thing then is just, I suppose, from a security and safety point of view is managing the network. Um, I mean, the PDST do provide filtering, you know, so that's useful. But um, then on your Wi-Fi network, you might have to think about, um, you know, how you're going to manage that securely. I mean, um, I don't know. A lot of people think that Wi-Fi passwords are pretty secure, but they're actually very easy to, to crack, you know, Um Stop it. Just stop yeah. now because we can open worms all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, um, you know, so like at industry level, they would tend to do um, a thing where you filter the actual kind of the device. So Mac filtering, it's called where um, any device that's got a network card, the network card will have a unique kind of number and you can decide only to to let the, the ones you want on the network. Now, there's ways around that, too. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we've had students in the past who have kind of done a few kind of hacks but like you need a, a bit of counter counter hacking to trace them out sometimes like but i mean you know you can only do what's what, what, what's realistic but you know there's just some thought there and um, particularly uh in terms of bandwidth because if you have a completely open wi-fi network which i mean if you have the ability to you can but you'll have students connecting phones those phones might have apps that might have ways around the kind of filtering um that you have in the school so that's a consideration. I mean, like if you have a school like us where you have upwards of a thousand students, you can be sure that, um, well, our, our students are not allowed to use phones in the school, but like if they're on in the bag um, and they're connected, you know, they're, they can be pulling down updates and all the rest. So, you, you know, you can have desktop between desktops, laptops, a student could have a tablet and a phone. You know, you could have eight hundred students in the school, but you could have two, three thousand connected devices. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a consideration as well. You know, we've we've gone off topic, and this is definitely something that I I wouldn't mind revisiting with regards to the the hardware and the Wi-Fi for schools, especially coming into the new um, the new year, uh, and of course with blended learning, this magic blended learning that's been happening forever. Anyway, it's just now it's really being deployed. Um. I think it's definitely it's it's a conversation for another day. But back to G Suite. So we mentioned you come in, you sign in, classroom. Uh, calendar is something that's getting traction online um, at the minute on the SESI list. Um, mm -hmm. What's your experience with Google Calendar? Yeah, I mean it's not something we would have used a huge amount, but. Um... I think you find in organizations, um, other than even outside of schools like that, you know, the kind of Outlook, uh, Active Directory Outlook has been a huge focused calendar there, all your kind of, you know, all the management features. And I think in a lot of schools, they even if they went G Suite um, on the office and admin side, um, you know, Outlook was probably still being used a lot for calendaring. But, you know, schools are discovering that Google Calendar has a lot of those features also. Um, uh, you know, uh, what's what, what I get? I, I, I did some of the, the G Suite um, exams there last year. And uh, you, so with G Suite, you can do these level one, level two exams and you can do the trainer exam as well. And I found actually in preparing for that, there was stuff calendar 
could do that I wasn't even aware of. So so that was uh, that was something. So calendar isn't something we've massively used, but certainly something we're going to look at using a lot more. And um, you know, especially with Meet integration in Google Calendar, it's very powerful and the ability to manage your, your meetings, you know, attach documents and um, share drives to the calendar. And look at calendar, um, we, we did a cursory look at it last year, but we didn't implement it, but you can use calendar to manage um, assets and equipment as well in terms of labs and and, and gear. And um, something we did start last year is encouraging the students to use calendar a bit because obviously if you're using classroom and you put due dates on assignments, etc. Uh, calendar is very useful there for students to get an overview and agenda view of what's coming mm. up and um, when assignments are due. So, um, yeah, I know it's one thing that I think we're not, if I was to say one Google product that we haven't been using to the full potential would be calendar and it's something we're going to look to develop um, next year. Yeah, so that that brings us nicely on to um, you, you mentioned the equipment where you've you've signed in you're now on, you've signed up to Google Classroom, your students have signed up to Google Classroom, they're getting notified when you have assignments sent to them. Um, what's the t What's the student-teacher communication like? So at the moment we've discussed teacher-student and admin to teachers, so notice boards, etc. What's the reverse of that? So what's the student-teacher communication like? Yeah, well, um, over the over the last number of years, the email I've uh, has been the the primary one. So a student will email, "Sir, I missed the class. What's the homework, etc." Mm. And um, actually, what what has been great for is you know you'd often get requests from parents that their son or daughter could be um, they could be ill in hospital and they're looking for teachers to coordinate sending work, you know, which is the job of work on uh, for everyone involved. Whereas if you're using Classroom or something, it eliminates all that. So, I mean, email would have been the default, but um, since we've been pushing, I mean, the thing with Classroom is, you know, we, it was growing in, in our school particularly, um, but not everyone was there, you know, so we, 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 we had a large usage, but, you know, um, since, since the lockdown happened then, you know, all the teachers were on board and now students um, have become accustomed to using that as a, as a primary point of contact. So, like, um, I would encourage students if they have a query about assignments, and I'm sure most teachers would be the same, um, if it's not kind of a, a sensitive or personal or, or nature that they post it as a comment on the stream under the assignment, because as we all know, if one student is uh, could, could be having trouble with something, then the lots of them could be doing the same, but they won't tell you. So, mm. you know, we'd really highly encourage, you know, if you have a query, if something doesn't make sense in the assignment or something's particularly difficult to post it publicly. And, you know, the great thing about this is actually um, it's it's naturally how students communicate anyways, using comments and, and tagging and all, all this, you know, um, because we would have, I, I mean, all teachers will notice now if they're teaching IT, that the ability to compose email or even understand what email is, it has gone on a massive downward curve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the last number of years, students would have come in, they'd be familiar with email, they would have maybe Aircom or Hotmail or Yahoo or something accounts anyway, if not Gmail. Um, but now they're coming in and they, they, you know, they don't use email maybe at home, depending on what their parents are up to. They never see them using email because, um, <clears throat> you know, there's kind of an age thing now. Younger people, it's it's kind of Snapchat. Um, TikTok. TikTok, yeah. for Yeah, TikTok, Snapchat. If you're kind of in your 20s, I guess it's Instagram. <laughs> and if you're over the hill, then it's Facebook kind of a thing. So, um, you know, and the, the kind of the idea of commenting on the stream or on the particular piece of work is very useful as well. So um, I think most of the, certainly since the lockdown anyway, most of the communications with the students would be handled not via email, but through comments and feedback uh, through the classroom system, you know? Yeah, I was watching um, a TED Talk by a person a while ago um i can't remember exactly but one of the things that they were talking about was they realized collaboration had become a success or collaboration had become a success to them when the students started answering their own questions so mm -hmm. when connor put up a question how i'm struggling with this i don't rightly know how to get to this point another student jumped in now that doesn't have this is an ideal world that happens in 
But every now and then that will happen. So when you're encouraging the student-student communication in a controlled environment, so in a comment section, that's surely that's a very good thing. Yeah, and like all the studies will show, it's mutually beneficial. It's very beneficial for the student who's getting another take or another explanation of it from their peer. But in order for that peer to explain it, you know, they have to do some deep thinking about it and, and, mm -hmm. and you know, put, put it down in a way that makes sense to someone else. So, you know, there's they're, they're, they're doubly learning. And if you can encourage that kind of thing, it's usually, usually beneficial. And, you know, this the, um, the well-trotted out, uh, phrases you know be the sage and uh be the guide on the side not the sage on the stage yeah so you know that's um that's it and actually uh, just on collaboration that's that's really where g suite is is the star you know i find i use a lot of different platforms and they all have their advantages and disadvantages but um there's something about google that just the collaboration is is you know it works very effectively in real time and very reliably in real time and i suppose that's because uh, it was designed from the ground up uh, that way, you know, whereas some other products that have way better features for different things and offline activities where they've added on collaborative features. Mm. It just doesn't seem to be kind of as seamless, you know, so that's that's um, that's the real strength of it, you know. And uh, yeah, sorry. what what tips or tricks do you have? Because we're going to we'll 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 wrap it up now. and We'll talk about the, a, a buying guide for those interested in um, in in Chromebooks. And I'm what I'll do is I'll put the whole lot up as one episode, but I'll actually chop off the buying guide and put that separately on onto the SESI website as opposed to us doing it uh, doing it twice. So in three minutes, pro tips for using G Suite uh pro tips um i suppose you know like when, whenever i'm trying to do things in in, in g suite if, if i haven't done them before you know there's a saying and it's true it's that you know people who are good at it are just really good at googling stuff uh, <laughs> you know, so I mean, quite often i would see queries because you know on twitter i put it out there you know i have a bit of experience so if you have any questions and i get some things that I, i'm not that familiar with but um, I'm just really good at finding the answer and sticking it up. Um, so I don't always know, but there's such a good community there that someone will know. And, um, you know, the tip is then as well is just, uh, you know, plug into these plug into these support networks, particularly SESI. And, uh, and rather than the kind of individual tricks, I mean, just overusing G Suite over time, you'll find, uh, you'll find kind of hacks and, and uh, kind of workarounds for things. But um, any 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 kind of particular pro tips? Um, oh yeah, one pro tip actually would just be if you're an, an admin to get the app for your phone. Oh because, yeah. Um, there's a G Suite admin app on the phone that allows you to reset passwords, and I find it invaluable going around the school or in in, in a class environment that a, a student will come up to you. I forgot my password, and rather than having to go and log into a machine, then you're 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 kind of logging in that way. Um, another tip on the admin side, particularly, is um, two-factor authentication is very important on any admin accounts, you know. And also maybe think of having a separate general use account. Say, if if I was administering a G Suite in a school, rather than having my everyday account be a super admin on the G Suite, um, you know, maybe think about a separate Connor Power admin account. Yeah, that it's two-factor authentication, and you only log in for that kind of stuff because. The risk is you leave the machine logged in somewhere, and um, and someone um, someone can uh, can access uh, that. And if they get into the G Suite admin panel, yeah, all um, of a sudden they, they change your name to Mister Underpants Head. Yeah, or <laughs> <laughs> our kind of you know, God knows. Um, the only the only other good thing about um, a couple of things about G Suite that people might be that aware of, like um, people say, oh, Google. You know, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard principals or, or teachers saying sure what if something goes wrong you know what can you do but you actually google support their phone support's been excellent we've had occasion to ring them a couple of times um for really kind of odd issues that we've had and they've been hugely helpful and you actually get access to that if you're setting up a g suite account from mm. when you apply for the upgrade so the process for setting up g suite uh, so a beginner's guide might be useful you go into G Suite, you fill out the form, I'm an educational institution, et cetera, et cetera. You sign up for the basic um, G Suite package, and then you apply for an education upgrade. 
And from when you apply for that upgrade, they will give you um, a kind of a user contact number. So if you're having issues around not being active after a certain period of time, you can actually ring them for support, which is very, very useful. Um, so uh, the other thing then is actually in the admin console as well, there's really good auditing. So you can see, um, you know, you can see your usage, which is useful. So you can see how often the users and what they're doing, what applications, how many documents are being created, all that. And uh, you can also see what changes have been made uh, in terms of admin settings, etc. And you can roll back things quite effectively, both as a user. So like um, a powerful feature of G Suite and Google Docs that most teachers would be aware of is that you can go in and see the revision history so you can see who's done what changes so if you're doing a shared document with the class and someone is taking the mic you can go and revert it but you know in the admin console there's also a lot of uh, that functionality as well if i delete a student account uh, which actually happened to me this year i deleted a student account thinking they were gone from the school because there was some issue around their name in the vsware mis system and, and g suite and a few days later, I got an email saying the student can't access their account. But you have, you know, you have 20 days to recover. So, yeah. you know, you can roll back a lot of things, which is which really kind of save your life as well. And actually, speaking of rolling back, um, one feature in G Suite that you should enable is the undo send. Um, so in your in your, in your <laughs> setting, there's an undo send button, and it's really helped me out. Over time. <laughs> Uh, now it only gives you a couple of minutes it gives you like a minute or two to unsend something but quite often you know you'd send something and you'd mistype it or you'd forget yeah it. yeah google actually does remind you i think if you if you say like see the attached file and you don't attach anything it was, yeah it was, which, which is also a nice feature but uh, like when you email <laughs> email somebody something that was meant for somebody else that's when yes. undo send is is yeah vital i've been that soldier and a lot of actually, I remember the early days of G Suite, what used to happen a lot is um, whenever you're creating a group, there was a little tick box. And I think it was check, could have been checked by default that said include everyone in the domain. <laughs> so I know a lot of schools that set up a staff group and forgot to untake that. And then they were sending out like things about staff parties and stuff. And yeah. <laughs> the students are coming back saying, we'll see you there, sir. <laughs> um, and the other thing, and uh, we had we discussed this kind of prior to prior to setting off the recording here, is that you know um, you you can't have a manual of how to use G Suite because mm. if you're familiar with a lot of Google products, they will change all the time. So Google, um, you know, so it's just a matter of kind of finding your way around, and quite often, like you know, there's funny ways Google will shift things from one menu to another. And in those occasions, I might have had to go onto the Google forum. So Google have their own support forums for G Suite, which are very good, um, and have a look around and see because they will move things to a different menu position, which may be more intu intuitive. Yeah. If you've been finding it in the old, um, in the in the old place for quite some time, um, you know that's that's. Um, that yeah, and I think you said it. I've been again. I've I've been that soldier. I've I've gone into. I've gone in training for teachers just like you and i've gone down and i've sat down and i said right now we're going to do a thing on the thing and you click over here and you go where where where's the button guy <laughs> why, why is it moved um but yeah i think you said it really well offline and it's it's a learning curve you just open up and you say look at this is what they do they're constantly updating and they're constantly changing and if they did get rid of the button you can be sure it's not gone too far yeah there are like you know today we're using Google Buzz in education. Oh no, we're not. It's gone. Google yeah. Wave, it's gone. <laughs> um, Google Reader actually is fantastic, and that's gone. You know, yeah. So, um, you know, Google. They're they're kind of an agile company, so they'll 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 make these decisions, and you know that is a, that is a bit scary, but it's not the end of the world when this stuff. It doesn't go overnight. It, no, it does, no, or there is something in its place. The problem is you you're used to. Yeah. what works we we tend to get used to an awful lot of stuff a buying guide um connor a buying guide for devices for chromebooks where mm -hmm. does one start because i have uh, to i have an old an old macbook air don't tell anybody i did this <laughs> that i just broke and i put chrome os on it and now it's a chromebook now again apple hardware fantastic chrome os fantastic happy days 
but if I was to go to the shop and buy a Chromebook, I wouldn't know where to start because there are so many. So you were telling me as a kind of a side chat that you're putting together a buying guide. Well, the thing with Chromebooks is a lot of the specs will look very similar. So probably the first choice, uh, or the first thing you want to do is look at the... Um, this the the updates so when you buy a chromebook google will guarantee updates to a certain year you know so just one thing might be if 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 a supplier had kind of older stock or older inventory just be aware that you want to check kind of the the support date that google so i mean we bought these are these are kind of latest mod we've got their their acer and um, they're guaranteed updates so 2026 so if you were to give them to a first year uh, now and, and they had them up to school you're guaranteed the security updates now the device will still work after that but you won't be guaranteed the latest updates um which which would have kind of an impact in terms of gdpr like a good thing about these as well in terms of gdpr's chromebooks is uh, the user profiles are encrypted by default so mm -hmm. when someone logs in um you know uh the you can't access the files unless you you're logged in as that user which is quite um quite useful um obviously it's there's some obvious considerations will be around the screen size so if it's one-to-one -one devices um you know the you know the 11 inch one like this is nice and portable mm -hmm. but i know a lot of primary schools that are doing one to two or you know <clears throat> they've gone with 14 inch you know so that's a consideration just in terms of screen size but like any laptop that's that's a that's a common thing so you decide that um the other thing then is that what you'll find is, you know, uh, one thing that we were looking for when we were specking out the newer ones is that the newer ones are all switching to USB-C charging. Okay. So rather than having a proprietary charger, the old kind of barrel connector, you know, um, one thing that's very useful, if you can get one that's USB-C charging, that's the new standard that's out. Um, that's going to be kind of one cable to replace them all. And the idea is then if you have banks of chargers that you can interchange them, you know, so USB-C will be the standard for nearly every mobile phone now, except for Apple, who have their own um, proprietary one, which they're fighting with the EU about at the moment. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah USB-C is everywhere. And um, what you'll find as well is some of them no longer have HDMI ports or VGA ports. So if you're if you're looking to hook up to projectors, um, that's that's done now through the USB-C as well. Okay. So BC and actually, and is uh, it a dongle you get, or you can get a dongle USB C to HDMI, um, or if you get a lot, a lot of the newer monitors now are coming with USB C ports, and what they'll actually do is the modern monitors. Now this isn't really a consideration for schools in terms of, of buying now, but the monitors will actually charge and display at the same time. Okay. So if you run a USB-C cable from here into an external monitor, you'll get your screen output on the monitor and it will charge the laptop simultaneously if the monitor supports it. So that's, if you're just wondering why there's no HDMI. Now, if you do need to kind of be hooking them up to projectors for teachers or stuff, you know, you might look for one with a HDMI. Um, I don't know if you'll find one of the VGA, maybe some around, maybe not. I don't know. Um, in terms of other ports, then they'll tend to have a USB, the standard USB um, connection there as well. Um, still, some of them will have SD card slots and some of them um, may not. This one has the kind of the micro SD, same as your phone. So that's something okay. you think of. Um, they'll tend to have the combo jacks as well. So that's the microphone and headphone jack in one. So some laptops and desktops might have those as separate, but this is the one. So it uses the the kind of the phone style connector, which is a TRRS tip ring ring sleeve, which will allow you to use a kind of a mic and a headset in there as well. Um, and this one actually literally only has those ports. So it just has USB-C, USB, uh, the standard, the connection, and it has the audio on that side. And then this little thing here, which you'll see on all the laptops is a Kensington lock thing, which is standard. But in terms of spec then, what you'll find is um, a lot of similarities, you know? Um, in terms of the screen, you'll just have to read reviews because unless you can go in and physically have a look, it's something that's hard to do. I was lucky enough to get over to Beth, um, Beth in the UK this year and in the Google stand there, they'll have every Chromebook going and you can have a nice kind of look and see what's what. Um, so the screen quality is something you might have to read a couple of reviews on. Um, some of the newer um, Chromebooks as well, they're coming with anti-pick keys. So that could be a factor, you know. Um, we've had an issue with some of the general use Chromebooks is that um, students will kind of pick the keys off 
some of the Chromebooks will come with recessed keys. Um, some of them have kind of spill-proof keyboards as well. Um, and some of them has these kind of micro microbiotic um, coatings that, that are supposed to kind of reduce the risk of transmitting um, things, which could be important as well. But in terms of spec is really what I want to focus on. And um, what you'll find with Chromebooks, they'll tend to start with two gigs of RAM. Um, obviously, four gigs would be better. So two, four gigs of memory, four, I'd recommend going with four gigs if you can. In terms of storage, then, um, the lower-end Chromebooks will come with uh, 16 gigs of storage, which is probably okay for basic use. But here's the thing. Um, what's really exciting me at the moment is that uh, the Chromebooks are enabling the install installation of Linux apps. So this brings uh, apps that we would have used in school that haven't been that haven't been able to use on a Chromebook before, like MuseScore for music, Audacity, um, for programming, things like Python, um, the full Python ID, idle and stuff like that. So, um, you know, uh, in, in terms of Linux apps, then if you're looking at installing those, you'd really want to be going with 32 gigabytes of storage. So your RAM, which is your working area, um, you know, you start at two, which is your base point. If you can go to four, highly recommend it. Uh, your storage starts at 16. If you're not planning to use Linux apps and, and, and that you might you know that might be adequate. But if you're if you're looking at expanding it in the future and future proofing, you know, um, 32 is better as well. And then the other thing to consider is the processor. So um, there's a lot of publicity um, over the last two weeks about Apple switching to making their own processors. And this is a bit technical, but if you bear with me, yeah, it'll make it'll make sense. So um, the most popular processors in the world in, in terms of laptops and desktops are Intel. So Intel make these processors. Um, and most of the Chromebooks, or a lot of the Chromebooks you'll find will have Intel processors. Um, the very high-end Chromebooks might have something like a Core i3 or a high-end Core i5. But most of the Chromebooks down at the kind of uh, 250, 300 euro level, they will have Celeron processors. Some of the really cheap ones could have um, Intel Atom processors, but I, I don't know if there's many of those around anymore. So you're looking at a Celeron. And the Celeron then, there's different model numbers. So they go from kind of an N3350. An N4000 is a good one. And they go slightly more powerful again than that. Um, so the thing with processors then is that uh, if you are planning to run Linux apps, or for kind of other reasons that the Intel processors are really the ones to go for because the Linux app are optimized for those. However, what you'll find is when you're looking at Chromebooks, if it doesn't have an Intel Celeron, there is a second category of processor, and these are ARM-based processors. So the ARM processors um, are, you, you, you'd be familiar with them from your phones. So um, all the kind of um, Snapdragons and all those phone processors yeah. are ARM-based. Um, what's the company? Qualcomm. Qualcomm make the ARM chips on phones. So if you're looking at a Chromebook and you see that the processor, they all have different names. So the most common ones would be kind of MediaTek or Rockchip or something like that. That Chromebook will have an ARM processor. Now, it's very hard to directly compare processors. So what you generally have to do is look at kind of benchmarks or reviews. So if you look at benchmarks, it will show you. Now, the ARM processors, um, they you know, they, they, they're, because there's there's different variants of them, you know, um, the performance for, particularly if you're looking at Linux apps, isn't going to be as good. But one thing about the ARM processors, you find them a lot of kind of Chromebooks that have touch screens. And, what, and the other exciting thing about Chromebooks is you can now install Google Play apps and Linux or okay. Android apps on them. So if you're looking at using it for more Android apps and kind of mobile stuff, and particularly if it's a touch screen, then the ARM processors are probably worth looking at. Um, I've owned Chromebooks, which have both. Um, and, you know, I find the Intel ones have, have formed a little bit better for me. So that's that's a consideration. And just keeping keeping with the general theme of what works for you, in the whole mess of processes, I've been doing this for too long to mention, and I still get my head baffled around processors. What works for you? Like, what do you find is good? Well, uh, you know, um, kind of the modern ARM processors uh, are, 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 you know, they're, they're, they're quite good as well. But um, just in terms of software, like the Linux apps will be designed to run on Intel processors. Um, some Linux software um, is compiled specifically to run on ARM. Um, now, both processors will run everything, but they just they won't run stuff um, as well unless it's really been designed for that processor or a version of that software. This is a big thing that's going to hit um, the Apple computers now. Um, and you may have heard some discussion around it because 
Apple are switching to ARM-based processors that they're going to make themselves. Mm. But that means an app like Photoshop. Photoshop, um, Adobe don't have an ARM-based version of Photoshop. So uh, software like that won't run natively on the ARM. So what they'll generally tend to do is they kind of put in a virtualization layer. Windows are doing this as well. So um, some of the Surface machines, um, some of the Surface computers you can buy now are ARM-based. But what they kind of do is when they're running uh, software that there's no as ARM native, native mm -hmm. ARM version for it, they run a kind of virtualization layer. So they kind of run almost a virtual Windows uh, machine to, to, to kind of to have that software run it. So there's a bit of a performance hit in that regard. So you'll find the same. <clears throat> it's just that in order for ARM processors to run software that's designed for Intel, there has to be, a, there's a bit more overhead because they have to virtualize some elements of it. Um, but where, what that equates to in Chromebooks is that if you're planning to run a kind of touchscreen Chromebook and you want to be using lots of the Android apps, that the ARM processors can be can perform a little bit better because the Android apps have been designed to run really well on ARM. Whereas if you're running a Chromebook to run the Linux apps, they're going to perform better on the Intel Chromebooks. Now, in general use, it might make a huge difference, but uh, in terms of, uh, of kind of if you're kind of forward planning, that could be a consideration. I know it's a little bit technical, but um, the best, my best advice, advice in terms of when you're buying is to look at benchmarks mm -hmm. because um, benchmarks are basically software that can be run on processors that will compare their speed at different things. And what you find with processors, um, Intel are, are, are the most popular, but in terms of desktops uh, and laptops, um, there's, um, there's also AMD, hugely popular as well. And when you're comparing processors, it's, it's a bit like cars, you know. I mean, you can look at certain specs about a car like the CC and, and this, but, you know, unless you actually kind of do a race in them, you don't see. Yeah. So with, with, with benchmarks, what they do is they'll run different tests on them. And you might find some processors are much better at kind of office tasks or some processors are really good at rendering video, but they make me good at other things. And particularly now, without getting too technical, processors of multiple cores. So some tasks, if you have a one really powerful core that can, that can, that can run a task really fast, it's very useful. Some tasks can be divvied out among the smaller cores and they can run more efficiently that way. So it's it's really, really hard to directly compare processors based on any kind of, like the processors will have a speed, they'll have what's called a clock speed mm -hmm. and they'll have cache, they'll have different levels of memory in them. But to get the overall picture of the processor, the only really kind of the way most people will do it is they'll run these test software on it and see. So, you know, when you Google them, you'll see them anyway, uh, or kind of ask for advice. If you can, like, like with all schools, um, the best advice, and I've seen schools in the past that have bought sets of this, that, or the other without getting their hands on one. Like, you know, um, sometimes it's worked out, sometimes it hasn't. If you can get your hands on, you know, on a, uh, some, some suppliers will send you a demo or a test unit, um, or even, you know, if you look at the investment, if you're looking at two or three models, um, you know, if you can get your hand and if you're if you're buying 100 for a, a year group or something, if you can buy the two or three and play around with them and, and see, you know, you can maybe avoid making a big mistake because, you know, if you buy if you buy two or three test units and you decide one of them is, seems to perform much better than the others, then you can confidently make a, a larger purchase. You yeah. Know? yeah. Try and get a demo unit. Try and get your hands on one. Um, even go into the likes of Curry's and they'll have they, they usually have all the Chromebooks on display there. And you can you can you can have um you can have a look in terms of manufacturers then like once you look at the processors what's inside chromebooks tends to be very very similar you know um because they're kind of all kind of like the component you know everything's built in to nearly the the when you buy when you buy an intel seller on a lot of the stuff is built in so what the actual manufacturers are doing or the value they add or the differences in the units tends to be more around the ports or the chassis than what's inside Okay. And um, one thing we'd recommend, like, say, we have all our sets have these kind of rub rubberized or ruggedized. Now, most of the manufacturers do some versions of these, but these have a rubber surrounding them. And you'll find students, you know, if they're hitting them off desks or walls, that's very useful as well. Um, the pick-proof keyboards would be useful as well. If, you know, if you're doing general class sets, it's, sometimes it can be a bit tricky to keep track of what's going on. Um there's little other bits as well that are harder to kind of gauge like webcams and touchpads and you only really get a feel for those by either using them yourself 
or reading uh, a lot of reviews, which I tend to do. Um, the thing with Chromebook and particularly education models is it can be hard enough to find reviews sometimes because um, you, these you kind of YouTube reviewers tend to do consumer gear more so. Mm -hmm. The education they can be a bit niche, like you know. Um, so that's it. So you know, um, the processor thing might have been a bit of a, a kind of rabbit hole, but in the rest of it, you know, four gigs of RAM uh, minimum, I would say, sixteen gigs of storage, okay, but thirty-two better. Um, the other reason the 32 is better actually is with the Linux stuff is that um, at the moment at least, if you're installing Linux software, it's installed to that user profile. So, you know, if you're installing um, a particular piece of software and it's 100 megs or 500 megs, if another user logs in, they they have to install that on their own profile also. It's, be, it's because of the fact that um, Chrome uses encrypted containers for each user profile. So... Mm that's why you need the extra storage if you're going down that route but uh, you know if you're if you're starting off it's not a it's not a consideration but if you if you're kind of looking at the technical part of linux apps later down the line it might be something worth thinking about excellent stuff connor power thank you very much for that uh, for all that information don't forget um you can get a hold of us uh, on twitter at hassan uh, on twitter at sessi tweets and connor what's your own twitter handle uh, I'm at Conpower, so C O N P O W E R, and um, the Sessi list. Obviously, like we, we discussed, with like likewise with the students, if you've got something specific, if you throw it up where everyone can kind of contribute, you're going to have a better experience. Excellent stuff, Connor Power. Thank you very much for joining us today, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again because I want to extend this for one or two more episodes. Thanks, Susan. Um, yeah.